You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And we have another very special episode for you this week. It is with none other than British Basketball Federation Chair Chris Grant. He came into the role in November of 2022. So well, that's about four months in now. Um, and we haven't heard a lot from him. Uh, there's been a little bit of criticism um, about a lack of voice from the Federation over the years, lack of face for the Federation. Um, and this is his first public interview since taking the role. And so we got a chance to delve into what he has been up to, uh, what his priorities have been, what the issues have been, and where he's trying to get uh, the British Basketball Federation to. You know, I think... As we know that the, the UK basketball scene, um, the governance structure is a bit weird compared to other countries because we have the British Basketball Federation, which is the official uh, member of FIBA. And then we have the home country associations um, as well. And, you know, they all have their own individual um, competing interests, which maybe shouldn't be competing. They should hopefully all be aligned. But as we've seen over the years through a number of different public statements, whether it's from players, administrators, people that have come in, you know, the revolving turnstile, which I talk about a little bit in the interview of chairs that we've had of the BBF. Um, it has not sort of led us to a fruitful position up until this point. So Chris has kind of come into this role to try to change that. You know, he's got an extensive uh, background of organizational change and working within sports leadership. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of hear his take on, on the issues that British basketball has faced and what needs to be done to hopefully turn the ship and get it to where we all believe it could be. As always, uh, before we get into the show, uh, please check check out our Patreon account. Um, that can be found at patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. There you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution for as much or as little as you'd like. If you like the work that we're doing, if you value the work that we're doing, if it brings joy to your life or if it keeps you informed and helps you helps you keep on top of British basketball news, um, please consider giving us a monthly or annual contribution. It really doesn't have to be a lot of money, but it goes a long way in supporting the work that we're doing. So please check out patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. As always, I would love to hear what you think. Um, if you're listening on YouTube, uh, leave a comment below. Uh, if you're listening on your podcast player, feel free to drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com if you prefer some one-on-one interaction. Or if you want to discuss it publicly, you can reach out to us on every single social media platform at hoopsfix. Anyway, that's enough for me. Uh, here is this week's show with BBF chair Chris Grant. Chris, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. So, where to begin? There's obviously a, a lot to cover. I know you haven't been in the role um, that long, but I know there has been obviously a lot going on. 21 weeks and four days. 21 weeks and four days. I'm glad you're counting. Um, so, let, I think let's just start at the start and kind of how you came up, came across the role, how you heard about the role. Um, and I guess what, what made you want to want to take on, you know, this position as, as the BBF chair? I saw the advert and the timing was good. I'd spent six years on the board of Sport England, um, which had come to an end. Um, I'd been chief exec of Sported, the Olympic and Paralympic legacy charity, which I'd stepped out of in 2018. A, a few projects had come to the end. And at the point where this came up, um, I felt I had the capacity to do it. And I've always been interested in basketball. 
in lots of ways. So, uh, so I was really happy to apply and even happier to be appointed and honoured. What is your previous experience, knowledge, um, connection with basketball? I played basketball at a very low level at school and, you know, starting five for my university, which sounds impressive, but in the 1980s, it wasn't that impressive. Uh, and, and to give you a sense, my school basketball days, we didn't have a full size gym. So it's like the, you know, the, 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 the court is like half size court. I can still remember some of our, our, our moves though, um, that, that Mr. Lilly, our history teacher and coach taught us. You know, I was a fan. I used to go to Crystal Palace when I was a kid to watch, especially they, they used to have, a, I think, a New Year's tournament. And yeah, WIC, Maccabi, yeah, Mar Maccabi, Tel Aviv, Earl the Pearl Williams, you know, these people would come over. And, and for me as a kid in South London in the, in the 70s, um, basketball was really interesting for lots of reasons. Um, not least its, its diversity at that point. So the kind of the Alton Bird era or Earl the Pearl Williams who played for Maccabi was this extraordinary figure for me. Um, I mean, to put that in context, I'm a Crystal Palace football fan as well, South London. I went to my first game at Selhurst Park when I was nine. I didn't see a player of colour play for Crystal Palace till I was 15 years old, 1977, the great Vince Hilaire. So part of it for me as a black kid growing up in the 70s was about basketball feeling more inclusive, something which, which can perpetuates to this day. So I've always been interested in it. I mean, I could fast forward in, when, in my student days in the 80s, in my, in my house in the second year, my student house, uh, we, we invested in renting a colour TV in 1982 ex explicitly to be able to watch the launch of Channel 4 and, the, and live Friday night, National Basketball League, English basketball on Channel 4, prime time. And that was why we got the telly so we could watch it. And the very first game they struck gold because I think I think I think it was actually Alton Bird who sunk one from the halfway line to win the game. In I know the there final was some minute. story like that. I haven't seen that, but yeah, yeah no, I know yeah, there was some yeah. sort of incredible game winner in the first televised yeah. game. So um, I've always been I've I've always been interested, but also, you know, from a sports administration point of view, I was aware that there's a job to be done here. There's massive potential, not necessarily been fulfilled since the great promise of 2012. So I was interested in seeing whether I can help with some of that. I was going to say, like, you know, your history, um, you've been around sports administration for a long time and you have, uh, and so you must have heard about basketball in England and basketball in the UK. Um, and you must have had interactions with the governing bodies or, or sort of heard that there might be issues um, or maybe not. But I'd be interested in kind of hearing what your, before you got involved, what your perception was of um, basketball as a whole, you know, why why basketball maybe wasn't popular um, or wasn't uh, isn't as popular as, as people think it should be, um, and why it had kind of been held back. Like, what was kind of your 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 preconception coming in of what it was? Well, my preconception was never that basketball wasn't popular, and and I think the data kind of supports that, and that which is that. I mean, it could be more popular, but loads of people love basketball. And the issue to me is why that's never been used as an asset or a platform effectively by the sport to build on in terms of its profile. Um, I don't understand why some other sports, and it's not that I've got anything against other sports, 
kind of seem to have found their spot on the in the, with the proliferation of TV channels and and basketball. I know it's changing, but but it hasn't. Um, yeah, the impression I had was of of great passion. And and for example, when I was chief exec of Sported. And, and Sported is a charity, a, a UK-wide charity, which supports local clubs and groups using sport and activity to work with young people. And I think we worked out at a certain point that there were 97 sports and activities that our member clubs were using there. The basketball ones were always near the top in terms of the quality of work and engagement they had with the kids. So whether that's, you know, the work that Carl Brown was doing in Leicester with kids or, or, or Steve Bucknell, the London Thunder or Lewisham Thunder as it started off, um, always really impressed at what was going on. So in a way, it was a puzzle. You know, why? This is an amazing sport. There seems to be lots of passion. There's a basis for, for, for the sport to do good at lots of levels. But then there was an impression of conflict as well. And, and so there was always this sense that you know, if the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, the fact that the for different reasons, uh, and often or, or maybe always, good faith and goodwill driving people and their own passion, their own view of what was most important, but instead of kind of like merging into a this is where we're going to go together, it kept doing this. Um, I was actually one of the roles that I did. Uh, one of the one of the and I did this as a kind of a supporter of the system was there was a meeting I think at the National Motorcycle Museum before 2012 where all the home countries and everyone else kind of came together to say well yeah we will we will be team GB for our home games and we will work together and so on and that if and I helped facilitate part of that day as a kind of an outsider and it just I left although it was a long time ago probably 2007, eight, around that time, I, I remember enough of that to, to have walked away thinking, wow, this is really exciting. Look out world, here comes British basketball. So, so and as I say, since then, I've been kind of waiting for the reality to catch up with that. And in my time so far in the chair of the British Federation, mm -hmm. I get a lot of that as I go around. People who have an interest in, in British basketball, maybe from the edge or the outside, they kind of look at me and go, why is it not kind of flying? And I think the answer is not that there's a lack of energy or goodwill or, or that the sport just doesn't fit what is going to work in today's world. It's about the parts. It's about unity. Um, it's about strategy, actually, which sounds boring, but I think strategy is really exciting when it's about, oh, that's where we want to get to together. That's the bit that we can only do if we work together. And um, so that's what we need, I think. And it's, it's got close, but it's never quite got there. So, you know, you've worked with, I don't even know how many different sporting organizations. When Lots. you compare, when you compare them and when you compare where basketball is, and you compare other organizations, especially when you look at the size of the participant base within basketball. Um, like, if you were to, I, I, I think this is something that you could probably riff on for hours, but succinctly talk about, you know, uh, what are the specific issues from your understanding now that have held specifically the British Basketball Federation and the Great Britain teams um, from 
I don't know, success, but maybe just sort of wider spread proliferation and um, penetration into the public consciousness um, and, you know, opening up whether it's funding pots, whether it's raising commercial funding, whether it's building an infrastructure, whether it's building a strategy, like what is it that you believe has held it back? And I guess that would then tie into your priority priorities um, to to try to drive that change. You're right. I could go on for hours about this and I'll try not to. Um, I think there are, there are two sides I can take in answering that question succinctly. I currently chair something called the Integrated Coaching Board for English Professional Football. And I've chaired that board for three and a half years. Um, and the purpose of that board is that all the key stakeholders in English professional football, men's and women's, noticing that the career paths of coaches and managers are intertwined across their organisations, whether that's the League Managers Association, the Premier League, the Football League, the Women's Super League, the FA, and that if they sit around a table once a quarter and talk about what they're all doing, and then actually one of the outputs of that might be that they, they pull together a shared prospectus for, for coaches or for players coming out of the game to go into coaching and say, well, here are some of the avenues across our system that you can follow. Um, and those things actually happen. At the beginning, it was a bit difficult because those organisations weren't working very well together. Now it is working pretty well. So, so that, it seems to me that there's been a lot of talk about unity, but some of the practical showing of unity hasn't come through yet. On the other hand, I could answer that question by saying, I've been lucky enough to be a fly on the wall in seeing our performance sports system, the kind of the funded bit, because you know, professional English professional football is kind of self-funding, obviously. But the funded bit, the sports which need funding in order to be able to perform an Olympic or Paralympic sport. In, in Olympics, we came 36th in the Atlanta medals table, 96. We came 36th in the medals table with one gold medal. Um, we were the first home nation famously to do as well, if not better, in the Olympics after our home games in Rio. And we've stayed there. You know, in Tokyo, we were fourth or third, depending how you count it planning and delivering world-class performance in sport is one of our world-class industries that we've got left on this island. Basketball seems not to have grasped or been able to fully take on board some of the principles which have made some other sports going from being really mediocre to being really great. Now, in saying that, I don't want to cast any aspersions or doubt around the fact that, for example, our senior women have just broken back into the world top 20 or the European top 16 and are going to Eurobasket, or that our senior men a few weeks ago effectively silenced the crowd in Belgrade. And, you know, as they closed the gap in the final two quarters of a game that they could have easily lost by 50 points. But wow, uh, you know, so the, there is, you know, we can perform. But in terms of saying... If we want to be in LA, and I, forgive me, I'll, I'll talk in, in, in Olympic cycles. I could be talking in world championships or Euro baskets or whatever. But, you know, if we want to be in LA in, in, in five years' time with four teams, two, two, two 5v5 and two 3x3 teams as Team GB, and if we want, as, I've, as, as we have decided actually internally is our, is our vision in Brisbane, 
32, we're going to be on the podium. We, we have the know-how within, within this country to deliver a plan that can take you there. And of course, at the end of the day, you may lose a game, you know, key player may get injured or whatever. But in a way, that's not the point. The point is having the aspiration, having the plan, having the unity to deliver it and prioritising. And I think part of the problem with British basketball is there's too much opportunity, which means that things come along and, pe- and someone says, oh, let's do that. Oh, let's do that. Let's do that. And, and which can be great. But if you don't also have the, but what are we trying to achieve in the mid to long term? And actually in trying to grab this opportunity, might we be jeopardizing that? That, that you know, one of the things I'm hoping to bring in, you know, through the, the BBF boardroom for the benefit of the whole sport is a bit more of that attitude. And that I'm, I think we're already seeing the signs of that happening, which is really exciting. What would you say to, you know, on, on the medals conversation, you know, there was so much discussion about this around the Olympics and post-Olympics where, you know, I think there is a credible case to be made that, um, you know, us, us putting ourselves as this beacon of performance sport and we can get so many medals, but actually where we're winning the medals is in sports that actually not that many of the world are, are participating in. Um, they're not, it's not quite as well. And also it's individual sports as well, where obviously, you know, you've got the individual uh, versus team sports argument where it's a lot easier to win medals in, um, in it. Well, when you talk about the funding per head and the return on the investment of that is very different between the two. Like when I think about whether or not the UK has had success in team sports globally over time. I would question whether or not that's true, that we can develop world-class sporting programs. Because when was the last time we had major success within a team sport? This summer with the Lionesses. I, I, I mean, I, I, I take your point, Sam. Yeah. And you can do the analysis, you know, and you can, you can say, yeah, there are some team sports. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned since I've been in this role is that certainly until recently, and I think it's still the case that, FIBA, the International Federation of Our Sport, has more members than FIFA, the International Federation for Football. So this is genuinely a big global sport, which means that genuinely being in the top 20 of the global rankings for our senior women, 5v5, is a a real achievement. What I would say in response to the heart of your question, though, as I understand it, Sam, is that the... And I, I know this. So most of my career, I've done a lot in sport. Most of my career has not been in sport. So my background is in organization development and mediation. And I've, you know, I've sometimes been the the kind of the, the referee in the middle of kind of industries trying to work together. Um, and so, for example, chip and pin program is one I use often, which is a while ago now, and many many of your viewers won't remember it, but we all used to have to sign for transactions at the, at the checkout and everyone. And the introduction of the technology that when we were able to do that and now means we do that, required all the retailers and the banks to work together, which they weren't very good at doing. And I, I chaired that program and got them. But the principles behind, for example, unification, every situation will be different, but getting the administration of a sport 
whether it's a team sport or an individual sport, and frankly, we were rubbish at all the individual sports as well in 1996, is the principles are the same. And I think one of the reasons, one of the things about basketball, as I see it, and this may not just be a, a, a British thing, it may be a broader thing than that, is that because it is really special, for reasons which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about, it, it is different from a lot of sports in a very positive way, that doesn't mean to say it hasn't got anything to learn from people who are really good, for example, at performance planning or at coach development or at some of the other things that you need to be good at generically. And, and in the rest of our sporting system in GB, there's quite a lot of churn of people moving from sport to sport now in certain roles. There are certain roles where absolutely you need to be steeped in the sport. But there are some roles where, frankly, someone who's not steeped in the sport and steeped in the interpersonal dynamics and the conflicts and all the other stuff that's been going on in the sport can do a better job than someone who is steeped in it. And it, once again, from a boardroom point of view, it's what our job is, is to make sure that we're getting the right mix of people to behind the scenes to manage the sport. And that's that's one of our priorities for the coming months. The the unity thing is not is not new. Like, you know, that is something I think that anyone that comes into the, to basketball is one of the first things that they will point to is, I mean, we probably more often refer to it as politics, the politics of, of basketball. Um, it's, you know, people protecting their own corner, looking out for their own interests, as opposed to looking at the, at the bigger picture. Mm. We've had... I mean, I've lost count of how many chairs we've had of the BBF now over the years. You know, it's been a and sort of revolving turnstile of people coming in, identifying the same problems and then leaving and nothing has changed. Um, so, so I'd pose two questions to you on that. One, why do you believe that you can do it differently or what you're going to be doing differently to, to make the unification of the sport happen? Um, and then two, is there an argument to be made that actually this model that we have of the BBF and then the home country associations below it just doesn't work because people don't want it to work. The people that are involved with the sport and actually maybe there needs to be a conversation with FIBA that we disband the BBF and we go back to representing as, as, the, as the individual home countries. And then in the future, you know, when the Olympics comes around, the home countries put on the, a program for 12 months leading up to the Olympics or whatever it might be um, to sort of come together for, for, for the run up to that, for the Olympics. And then, and then they disband again and go back to their separate ways to kind of avoid that, that um, the politics issue. Mm. Oh, well, thank you. Because that final phrase, you know, to avoid the politics issue, I mean, your analysis, once again, we could talk about that one question for hours, but one of the or part of the answer to your question sam is you can never avoid politics with human beings so whatever you try and do there will be politics and there's a lot of interpersonal relationships i i think that to to answer the first part of your question first what's different um i don't kid myself and i know i've known some of the characters who've been involved in the leadership of basketball down the years um and i've i've kind of seen some of them at work in different contexts and you know i have great respect for a lot for what they've done in different forums um what needs to be different this time 
I, I believe in a model of, in general, of facil- what I would call facilitative leadership, where you've got different interests and powerful players, actually. And, and, and the first thing for me is to try and understand, and you kind of said it, the world from their perspective, because, um, you know, if you're, if you're, and I can, I can, I will use these examples and I hope they'll forgive me, but it's a kind of a matter of fact that if, if you're involved in basketball Wales, your resource base is very different from if you're involved at the moment in basketball England and basketball Scotland is somewhere in between. I'm the chair of British basketball. And frankly, if we're going to achieve what we say we want to, which is not only to be in Brisbane 32, but to be on the podium, you know, that I don't care if the kid who's going to score the game winning points for our men and women or women is growing up right now in Aberystwyth or Aberdeen or Aldershot. You know, right now there's someone out there and, and, and my job from a GB point of view is to support England, Wales and Scotland to find those kids and to create a non-confusing channel for them to be, to become GB, the GB player that they can be. Now, there are different ways to do that, but the, I think one of the ways that's been tried is, is to kind of say from the top down, this is what the channel needs to be. My idea of facilitative leadership is to get the right people in the room and say, how are we going to make this channel work? How can you get what you need? And what might you need to give up? So it's not dodging the difficult issues. What might you need to give up in order to make sure that we have a cohesive approach to what the GB way is going to be in basketball? So so what? and, and I'm not saying that nobody's tried or even achieved some of this before, but if, I, if I'm if I have any optimism about this, and you can never guarantee stuff, it's that I've got quite a lot of experience of that kind of leadership, and it's more about what you do than what you say. Um, and then the second bit about FIBA, um, you know, we one of our big opportunities is that we're an important market, and there's massive interest already in basketball here. Um, you know, there are initiatives, I see initiatives going on. Um, there was something that was launched in London this week with the mayor of London and the NBA. I, I see announcements on, on your website, Sam, about new arenas and, and potential new franchises and footballers from, the, from professional football getting interested in owning franchises in different towns. And, and all of that is really brilliant. And so, so, so I think the good news that I get is that whether it's FIBA or other stakeholders, their first question in a way is kind of how, how can we help? Um, and if at the end of the day, because there are other sports which are basically run on an England, Scotland, Wales, and in some cases, Northern Ireland basis. And, and, and as you say, every four years, they get into that cycle of let's, let's forge a, a team GB, which primarily comes from whatever country it is that happens to be dominant. I think it's worth another go at seeing whether we can't come up with a better model, which doesn't mean 
And this has been part of the conversation that we've been having, for example, with UK Sport, who are really important in this as the funder, the channel of government funding. What, what, what we're not looking to do quite genuinely is to build a kind of an organization on top of the existing organizations, which just ends up kind of crushing them or, or being rejected by them. We're looking to build the, the minimum necessary facilitative structure on top that's really effective and efficient. It's not very big from a British Basketball Federation point of view, but it's bigger than the current organization because coming in as chair, I, I sort of knew this, but, but actually coming to terms with, with any organization of our status and function, which has zero employees, you know, has people contracted for the winter, but kind of saying, you know, hold on a second, zero chief exec, zero COO, zero finance. You know, we contracted these functions in, but I'm not looking to build a big organization here. And I don't think we need one because there's loads of capacity and talent and passion in the countries and in the clubs and in the communities. I've seen it. So, so what I'm looking to do is to, is to create what we need to align that. Chances of success, I think, are growing. So it's week 21, four days, I think, today. Um, I think that if, you were, if we were having this conversation in week 15, I would have been less confident than I am today that we can succeed. And as long as that remains the trend, um, I would expect that within the next two to three months, um, we'll have some really solid uh, capacity in place that I can show you and show the nations. It's already happening actually around the planning for the age groups this summer, which I'm really enjoying seeing from afar, just watching the people in the different nations working together to create what I hope will be one of our strongest showings at under 16s, under 18s and under 20s this summer. Um, and it will be strong because we'll have drawn on the capacity from all the nations. So you, what, what, what do FIBA actually say? Do they, like, has there, has there been any conversation about potentially reverting back to removing GB as the official? Because I feel like when you talk about the remit of GB, it's in a very weird place. And it's one of the reasons it doesn't have the capacity. It's because of the fact that the funding model in this country is very, uh, well, much more based around grassroots sports. And then you've got the elite. And then because essentially the BBF is really responsible for your youth teams, and the men's senior men's senior women's what's that like uh, eight teams essentially running eight 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 teams every summer um but then also because of the official fever body they've got other responsibilities like the bbf license and a couple of other bits and it kind of leaves you in a weird sort of place um you know has fever said at all you know that would be an option on the table because i know it was it was Patrick Bauman who, you know, has now unfortunately passed away, who was the big driver of this on the FIBA side at the time of wanting to see the home nations come together for, for GB, despite, I think, um, resistance on, on the part of the home nations at, at the time. Um, but obviously, it's, you know, it's happened now. But yeah, like, has there not been any conversation around that? Do you think that's, that option is completely off the table? It's not on the table for me at the moment. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I, I took on this role as the chair of the British Basketball Federation. I believe in the British Basketball Federation and I believe we can make this work. I can understand why if, if we were to go another 
two, three, four years and, and we couldn't make it work, then at some point you need to look at another model because at that point it will be, what, 15 years. Um, I genuinely believe this can work. And, but to answer your question directly, Sam, I haven't had that conversation. I don't expect to be having that conversation mm. in the near future. Um, I expect to be having a conversation. And, and actually, you know, having worked for a while at the very grassroots with Sported um, and having worked with, you know, in, being on the board of Sport England, you know, looking after the kind of the pathways, um, it's a luxury to primarily be looking at just eight teams. Um, and I think we can make it work. Mm. I believe that. Interesting. Um, this, I believe, is your, I believe, your first public-facing interview since taking the role. I might be wrong. Um, why haven't you decided to be to do more interviews or be more public facing, communicate a little bit more. Like, you know, I think that there has been a frustration for sure within the community over the years that, uh, you know, we don't hear a lot from whether it used to previously before seven, seven came in BBL was the same deal. You know, there wasn't a CEO or a face of the league. So it was kind of like faceless. And then the home, the home country sort of governing body, the same thing. There's sort of a, a you know, a feeling that there's uh, people that are sort of making decisions up here that are sort of overseeing safeguarding the sport meant to be safeguarding the sport and actually we very rarely hear from them and hear what they're trying to do and kind of what they're working on like um why is it not until now that you have decided to do an inter interview there are a couple of main reasons one is that a real priority for me personally but i think for the game and it's an opportunity was to ask some people what they thought and i was aware that there were different views so there were the politics that you talk about but equally important, if not in some ways more important, and I think this is one of the shifts that's happening across the sporting landscape where basketball can be a leader, is about player voice. So basketball is blessed and has been blessed down the years. And even for me, not following as closely as some people, the specifics around what's been going on in club basketball, some of the characters who've come through basketball, like... Um, Zania Stewart or Kieran Achara or whoever um, have got a lot to say. And one of the first things I did, which I prioritised over going out and making statements, was put out an invitation to our current and recently retired players to come and have a chat. And, and we had a chat. And um, How was that? It was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I was, I was so impressed at at their kind of thoughtfulness and, and frankly, at their resilience in having managed to be as good as they were individually and collectively in a non-ideal situation. So, so hearing from everyone, but hearing from players first was important. That's part of the answer. Second part of the answer was that because of the difficult background um, and the politics and stuff, um, it's a bit like moving into a house, I think, sometimes, you know, going in any new job, you've got, you've got, you know, you've got the estate agent's description and then you, you go and visit the house and you say, oh, nice house, needs a bit of work. Um, and, uh, and then you move into the house and then you say, oh, all right, okay, so this bit needs quite a lot of work and we, maybe we won't be using that bathroom for a while and, or whatever, 
I, sorry, I don't want to overdo the metaphor, but one of the things I can tell you, and I, I think this is the first time I'm telling the basketball community this, is that on Tuesday of this week, we're, we're, we're recording this on Thursday, we received confirmation from UK Sport, who've been funding basketball at a lower level than most of the sports it funds on the world-class performance program at a level called progression funding, which is primarily designed for what it says. It's for sports that kind of need to move on. But it, we've been a bit of an anomaly in a way because on court, both men and women, we're operating at, at competing at quite a high level. But anyway, for whatever reasons, the way that the funding was 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 kind of agreed and staged was not going to be sufficient or help us be good <laughs> for the first few months of this coming financial year, which starts on, on, on the 1st of April. So, so we had a lot of work to do behind the scenes to sort out um, the case, if you like, and the data behind the case. And, and this, this Tuesday, and I'm really grateful to UK Sport for listening to this in the way they did. And, and actually we've worked with them um, to, to kind of get all the material together, which means that we now have a solid runway and, and foundation for the work. So for example, for the women going to Slovenia um, this summer, um, what we can't afford to do anymore is, you know, and I, I'm, I, I'll be really careful in saying this because once again, it's a tribute to not just the players, but the staff, the coaches and everything that we've done as well as we, we have. But, but if you talk to the players, and I don't think anyone around the players will disagree, our preparation for, for big tournaments hasn't always been up to what other, other nations have had. And, and, you know, I watched our men's, our, our senior men in their Eurobasket last summer. And it's not nice to watch your team get beaten by, you know, 30 points in games that you know that the, the talent is there. It's the preparation. So it's a long answer to your question, but it was really important to get some of the main planks in place for the coming months. And as I said a couple of times already, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And, and I'd rather talk about it. So, so until this Tuesday, until I, I was pretty clear that, for example, we'd be able to for our, to give those magnificent women um, who won those last two games in Manchester by sufficient points to qualify, until I knew that we could give them a decent run into Slovenia and that really interesting, the group they've got in Eurobasket with Germany and France, until I knew that, I didn't want to come and talk with you because otherwise it would just be words. Whereas now I can say to you, Thank you, UK Sport. We've 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 set things up for success. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we can splash the cash and and kind of throw it around. We still have to make decisions and prioritise what we're going to do and what we can't afford to do yet. But it gives us a platform. Going back to some of the things that you said earlier, and which I found mysterious, like why would a sport which has nine million people who are interested in it in the UK, apparently, according to the data. And why would a sport which genuinely, in my life, has the most diverse 
fan base that I have ever seen anywhere for anything. You know, when, when, when our men played Belgium a few weeks ago in Newcastle, I looked around the arena, it was a Friday night, and what I saw, I think, this is not scientific, this is Chris having a look around the arena, but I always look around wherever I go, I always look and see who's there. You know, there were groups of lasses on a lasses night out on Friday in Manchester, in Newcastle. There were groups of lads on lads nights out. There were, there were people who looked like they were on dates. I mean, maybe they were brothers and sisters, but you know, whatever. There were, there were family groups with three generations, like children, parents, grandparents together. There were youth clubs, there were basketball clubs. The area of that lovely Virtue Motors arena for wheelchairs was pretty full. There were black people, there were brown people, there were white people. There were people who looked like they came from the leafy suburbs of Newcastle, which does have leafy suburbs. There were people who looked like they came from... And I'm looking around the arena on a Friday night watching the, the, them play. And I'm looking at Belgium with a sponsor on their jersey and us with no sponsor on our jersey. And I'm thinking, this has got to change. This is, this is a marketeer's dream. Um, so the fact that we now have a runway is our chance over the coming few months to begin to open up some of these avenues. Um, and I will say it, and I haven't asked their permission to say it, but one of the reasons that UK sport have done what they've done for us, and it's not, you know, in itself, it's not going to, you know, transform basketball. It gives us a platform. It's really important. But one of the reasons they've done it was that the, the, the chairs of the three home country associations, and this was not orchestrated by me, they did it, um, wrote a joint letter to UK sport last weekend saying, we think this is shifting in a really positive direction. Please support what the British Basketball Federation is trying to do with us, not to us. Um, and I think once they picked themselves up off the floor, the UK sport folk, when they saw that, thought this, is, this could be for real. And, and that was part of the basis and the important part. And I, I, I want to use this opportunity to say thank you um, to Stephen, Matt, and Gavin, who's acting into that role in Wales at the moment, for taking that initiative. Um, it's been, a, you know, it's been tough for everyone, I think, through the last months and some years for some of them. But to come together in that way and, and to, to have that vote of confidence coming out of the nations, it also is part of my answer to your, your previous question. What makes me think it can be different this time? Um, the, the, the nations and the leagues we're having conversations with too from a BBF point of view, saying how can we make sure that our interests, men's, women's league and the national team are all being served together through what we do. So what is the actual commitment from UK Sport? Are you able to share that? The commitment is to, it, it's not about the amount in the first instance, it's about the scheduling. And it, what, what they're doing is rather than doing what I think is a sensible thing historically to do, which is to kind of spread out payments, they basically said, okay, we'll trust you will invest all of this year's money. And I'm not going to say the amount. It's not appropriate. It will become um, visible, but but right now it's not. We'll, 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 as long as you show us that you're, you're, you're getting the systems in place to be able to report on this well and do it all, we'll, we'll, we'll front load it, which gives you 
the, the runway, as I say, to be able to perform. And what that means, because, you know, if you're going to sign a sponsorship deal with any sponsor, the first questions they're going to ask you are, you know, how do you know how we're doing with this? How have you got the systems in place to be able to capture the data and report stuff or whatever? And, and fundamentally, they're going to say, um, if, you know, if we're going to be on your jerseys and you're telling us that your, you know, the November men's qualifiers for Eurobasket are, you're going to hit the ground running and you're going to have a program up there, you know, they want to know that you can deliver that program. The women's qualification, once again, for this summer's Eurobasket was massive. And we ran a little prototype. Some of your viewers may be aware of it, but um, the, the hotel that our women have stayed in for the last few cycles at home in Manchester, the, the Holiday Inn in Manchester City Centre, have an artist in residence. And our captain, um, who's since announced her international retirement, go out while you're on top, maybe but Chantel handy also happens to be a really talented artist and what by the way one of the things that which basketball has over just about any other sport is the overlap with kind of visual art with music with street culture all these things and so our our captain Chantel is a really talented artist and and I'd, I'd seen some of the work that she'd done and she, she does designs her own shoes and and so on for the court so the hotel has an artist in residence and they did a joint project, Chantel and Sasha Ray, this artist, which became a motif which went onto the jerseys for those final two games. And the, you know, the hotel gave us some really good value in return for that because it was kind of promoting them in a way. Um, but it was also showing everyone that we can be good ambassadors for their brand. So what we've got now is the opportunity and the, the the collateral, if you like, the, the 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 material to put behind the pitch, which goes out to people. You know, I was on a platform on Friday for International Women's Day, an event in London, two hundred women, and you know, I was one of the token patriarchs, kind of saying, "Well, actually, if it's going to change, it's going to be us, <laughs> to a great extent," um, and. What I know from the conversations that took place in the main room and behind the room is that when people hear that you're involved in British basketball, they kind of they kind of leap forward. And a lot of these people are representing brands that should be on the front. They should be fighting with each other to be sponsoring GB Basketball. And I, I once again, this is I know that there are lots of reasons why it's been hard up to this point for the different bits. And I know that there have been some successes in attracting support at home country level or for particular programs. This is the time where we need to, uh, and we will, if it's anything to do with me, have people boxing out and saying, no, 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 we want to be on, the, on those jerseys. Now for the women going to Slovenia, I think it's what, 90 days since that tournament, till that, till that tournament starts, don't have much time. I'm optimistic that we'll get something good for that. But by the time we get to the next cycle, the end of this year, I expect us to, and we don't need to do masses. We just need to show that we can diversify our revenue streams. And so basically they're saying, we're going we're gonna to give you enough funding to 
give you the I don't know whether it's the bare minimum or what you can you can actually hire some executive staff that can do stuff, deliver stuff, whether it's a commercial manager, whether it's a um a uh COO operations person. A, a, a performance lead, performance yeah, lead. All those things. Okay, so then so there will be a start building out of a front office staff for the federation again to be able to do stuff and then you then need to prove that with those staff you can actually start delivering stuff and then hopefully they will continue to Keep it rolling yep. whilst you try to get to a path of sustainability through commercial income and other revenues. Yeah. yeah. And 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 all of the above and what we've already done. So I'm 21 weeks in, um, 13 weeks in, i.e. eight weeks ago, we started getting the benefit from what I've been calling an interim exec team. So it was pretty quickly apparent to me that, um, I mean, your question from earlier about, you know, what makes you think that you can do it different from anyone else has? Part of my answer to that a few weeks in for me was, I can't because it's mad. We need some help, but we don't have the resource to secure it. So in a groundbreaking move, and it is groundbreaking, we've brought in um, on secondment for three months um, from British Cycling, one of those sports that as you say, is largely uh, individual on the in terms of achievement, but of course, there's a team behind it, a really talented performance planner and leader who happens to have been an athlete in 2012 as well um, in a team sport, but not, not basketball. Um, FIBA have been supporting us in, uh, and they've, you know, we've had athletes. One of the ironies is that there are lots of athletes who've represent players who've represented GB or being British who've gone off to careers in 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 international basketball or marketing or whatever, but or, or been through some of the programs, the international leadership programs that FIBA run. So Kieran, the great Kieran Achara, hundred and five caps, the only person who Nicola Sturgeon on the day that she announced her resignation as first minister tweeted a photo of herself with Kieran. Um, Supported by FIBA, he is helping us just sort out how we do our international relations. He's been through their international relations course and, and looking at some of the stuff around alignment, around technical stuff. Um, and then we, we with, with a bit of extra backing from UK Sport, we brought in someone to sort out our management information systems and, and, and our governance, how we make decisions and follow them through and record them. Uh, and that's someone who was brought in on a contract basis for 20 days and has done a rem those three in eight weeks have done a remarkable job. So once again, when we spoke with UK Sport the other day, we had a letter from the Home Country Association chair saying we think things are moving in the right direction. And we were able to show them things that we'd done. And you're right, what we now have the opportunity to do on the back of their decision, UK Sports decision, is to, is, is to not wave goodbye to those resources, but to have resourcing over the coming months. You, you mentioned it earlier. Um, something I wanted to touch upon was, was obviously Eurobasket for the men last summer. You know, I think, well, that, that could well have been what, what ended up leading to your appointment because it sort of felt like it was the low point where, you know, everyone was just like, this has to change. It cannot go on like this. You know, we've got a team that ultimately felt a little bit like they'd been sort of hung out to dry. Um, there was no public face taking responsibility or accountability for it. Um, and there's no real answers. And, you know, so sort of coming out of that, you know, there was a, there was meant to be a review that was meant to have been happening of kind of like how, what ended up transpiring, transpired. Um, 
well, and also ideally, I think there would be a, like a level of accountability and I'll be interested to hear, and I know this was before you officially started, but um, you know, you coming in, what you know of kind of what happened post Eurobasket and whether or not anyone has, has been held to account for it. Because as far as I'm aware, there's, I don't think there's been any resignations from the board. Um, you know, I think we're still kind of like, it's just kind of been almost swept under the rug a little bit. Um, and now obviously you've come in and it's a new face and clearly you're making progress, but there was still a situation that happened that, that really shouldn't have happened. Um, and was very unfortunate for, you know, all of those, those involved. Yeah. It, I mean, it was unfortunate. And as I've, I've said, and I, I think anyone reasonable would agree that it's not good to send your troops into battle underprepared relative to what they could have been. Um, what I haven't spent a lot of time on is going, I mean, as I say, one of the first things we did was talk to some players and, and you know, there were, and, and, and I'll, I can, once again, I've named a couple of names, but, you know, someone like Dan Clark, who, who another one of your interviewees coming to the end of his, his of an amazing career as a player, um, but who was kind of involved in that, you know, listening to them. One of the things that I think I can say with, um, you know, with confidence that I'm not breaking any uh, promises around what I would or wouldn't disclose is I wasn't picking up from the players a lot of finger pointing about individuals or collectives who let them down. Um, can you argue that was because point, they didn't know who was even responsible because they had no, it was just a skeleton organization, you know? Possibly. And I think it's, you know, there are reasons, once again, it goes back to boring stuff around governance and so on. You know, there are reasons why in, in most organizations, including sporting ones, you have roles which are non-exec, which my role is meant to be, and then you have execs and, and you have clearly defined accountabilities. And for, for, for various reasons, which I understand, which aren't any particular individual's fault, a lot of that has been eroded. So, so, so getting quickly back to a position where there are role descriptions, roles, people who are paid to do certain things professionally, people who, who may not be paid to do things but have responsibilities, then, you know, yeah, part of that is when things go wrong, I want to be able to have a finger pointed at me and it said, well, Chris, that went wrong. Um, I may say something in this podcast <laughs> that someone will, someone will say, hold on a second, Chris, and, and you know, and, and if, if, if I feel I've got it wrong, I'll fess up. But... The, there's been quite a lot from a British Basketball Federation point of view. There's been quite, you know, at the moment we have some vacancies. And once again, following on from the assurances that we've got, we are now in a position where we can recruit onto our board and get, we have, we have five vacancies on our board. So watch out basketball folk. But also remember the bit I said a few minutes ago, it will be a fair process of, of, of getting people onto our board and there will be certain areas where we'll be more interested in people's experience, for example, around commercials or whatever commercial work than we will the fact that they love basketball. Um, but the straight answer to your question, Sam, is I haven't conducted an inquest. There are some questions to be answered about the present and future of our men's programmes, our women's programme. What I'm really proud of although it's not me who's done it, is that 
the age group leads in England, Scotland and Wales, um, Phil, Barry and Steve, with our performance coordinator borrowed from British Cycling being in that facilitative leadership role. She's not the one who knows who's going to be the best basketball coach, but the process that they've gone through to appoint the coaches and managers for the age groups this summer, 16s, 18s, 20s, I think is a, is, is a model of how we're going to want to operate in the future around how we fill, how we fill these roles. Um, there are some decisions that are going to be, have to be made around, and, I, and, and by the way, you know, the coaches who've been involved with all of our programs, once again, can't be held, I don't think, they don't deserve to be held accountable for any failure, quite the opposite. They've worked against the odds often to, to deliver. And we've got a coach on our men's side who's amazing, who's a legend of British basketball, who's mainly not in this country at the moment. We've got another coach who's been kind of stepping in, who was assistant coach, has taken on the head coach while also being head coach of a BBL. You know, everywhere I've looked, if I've seen stuff that I felt we can't live with that, that's going to hold us back or that's working against what we're trying to achieve. Believe me, I, am, I will deal with it and I have endeavoured to deal with it. But if I look around, I say, well, there's someone doing their best who maybe hasn't been given the level of support they could have been, then, then my job is to give them the level of support. And there's been a lot more than that of that than has been of, mm. you know, you shouldn't be doing that job. So in an ideal world, like you said, they're like kind of like there really wasn't the structures in place, the procedures in place, whatever, the, whatever you want to call it to, I guess, to, for, for accountability to take place. In an ideal world, you know, if we're sorting out those structures and we're getting everything right and on point and um, being governed properly, moving forward into the future, you know, if things do all go, you know, pear-shaped, let's, you know, touch wood, that's not going to happen. Um, what what would the ideal process be? Who would be holding, you've obviously got the executive staff that are being held accountable by the board, and then who are the board answering to um, for their account to be accountable? Great question. I think part of the answer to that is, is the composition of the board and making sure that you have people on the board. So I've talked about the skills and knowledge of board members, but also and, and with this whole movement towards athlete voice, player voice, making sure that you've got people in the boardroom who've been through some of those experiences, good or bad, who can bring their perspective into the boardroom. And then any decent governance structure, a, a critical function of it is to hold people accountable, including the chair, by the way. So, you know, the, the, whether it's by um, a committee of the board or whatever, or the whole board actually saying, we believe you've been deficient and we need to kind of sanction you in some way or, you know, maybe we need you to go. That's always there. And I, and I think, but I welcome that. I welcome that. But I don't think genuinely, from what I've seen, basketball is driven by people's love for the game. And I know that, I mean, that's a cliche in any sport. People love sports. But I've worked around a lot of sports and I see more people here who desperately want the game to succeed. One of the other assets of, of basketball over and above a lot of other sports is the whole masters movement in inverted commas. You know, the fact that unlike me, although I might be tempted back, you know, there are 
30, 40, 50, 60, 70 something people who still are, are getting the joy of the feeling of a ball kind of like just rolling off their hand and, and, and you know it's going to swish or whatever. I've actually rarely had that feeling. But, you know, the basketball has a, all of those people. I want to feel that they have their place in basketball. But here's the really important thing. And I think you've sort of said it, and I will say it now out loud, is just because I've got my version of why I love this game doesn't mean to say that I shouldn't respect why your version is different. And, you know, there's, there's a generational thing, for example, around the fact that basketball has this overlap with music, culture. I see it coming to life in some parts of how we do the game. There's loads more potential to do loads of that. And, and some old fogies like me might go like, oh, God, you know, what's going on? Um, you know, why, why? But actually, when I look around and I see the teenagers in, in the arena just absolutely in it, I can celebrate that. And I can say, oh, wow, that group who've been brought from that local club having the time of their lives, I can put up with five minutes where I feel a bit irritated by that bit. And I think, so, so we started this conversation by talking about unity and, so the, and politics. And, and the unity in the politics is structural. It's about the different bodies, home countries, leagues, other stakeholders, UK sport, Sport Scotland, Sport Wales, Sport England, all working together structurally. It's also the unity of individuals saying, I love this game. I can play my, I can have my version of it and I can enjoy the fact that other people have theirs. Um, and actually there might be someone who I used to play against 20 years ago and we've never really got on, but now we're allies because we all want this sport to succeed. And I, and I think that there's been a lot of that. I see a lot of that and we can amplify it and it can become a super strength for our sport is this you know because we are and i'll say it again this is the most diverse community that i've ever been part of in terms of age socioeconomic background ethnicity gender all of those things it's amazing it's vibrant it's energetic it's athletes are and i'm generalizing but it's what i've seen are brilliantly eloquent and opinionated and have a lot to offer you know this sport has got so much going for it it's got so much even things like when i was at you know it's 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 a sport is a brilliant place for kids to learn stuff including academic stuff there's loads of maths in basketball if you think about it and and some of those local clubs you know, a kid may not be talented on the court, but by learning about the scoring system, um, you know, back in my day when I played, it was all manual or whatever, but, but learning, there are more opportunities to learn about all sorts of things through basketball than there are in many other sports. So, so, so that unification process involves individuals accepting that their version of, the, of, of what's great about the game is legitimate and so is... You know, if, there might be some stuff which is unacceptable, which we have to cut out the game. But I've seen little of that. What I've mainly seen is people who love this game, who if we can join forces, the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts. 
you know, we, we have set ourselves the ambition of doing really well at the elite level on the court because that's our job as the British Basketball Federation. But I'll tell you a little secret. I will, I will deny I ever said this, although, of course, you're recording it, is if we don't get a medal in Brisbane 2032, but the game is where it needs to be in this country, commercially, in communities, in all that sort of stuff, I, I'd rather it were that way round than that we won three medals in Brisbane and, you know, you go into a community in wherever it is, Aberdeen or Aberystwyth, and, and you're saying, where's the basketball? I don't want that. We should be on the back pages of the newspapers in old money. Um, we will be more visible. You know, the Channel 4 Friday night thing, unfortunately, never lasted. Um, but the next version of that will be smarter and, and we'll have learned, and we'll frankly, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your podcast, but, um, you know, we'll learn from the people, and you're not the only one, but the people who've been making those connections already down the years. So a lot of the things I've talked about today, I've said, we're already doing this to some extent. You know, my little mini ex interim executive team, they're amazing, three of them. It, it, a lot of the stuff we need to do is already happening in the basketball ecosystem, but it's outside the city walls at the moment. How do we include all of that and be stronger than the sum of our parts? That's, that's, that's my, in a way that's, I'm quite happy almost and I'm to end this podcast by putting that out as a challenge to everyone watching it. You know, what role are you going to play in being part of this movement? Because if you're willing to accept that invitation which also means asking yourself, what do I need to maybe let go of a bit? I promise you that we can make this sport fulfill its potential. And this sport has the biggest gap between the actuality and the potential of any sport in this country right now. And I think we all know that. That, that would be a perfect place to leave it. But there's a, one more thing I definitely wanted to cover before, before we wrap up. Um... I, we didn't really get a chance to touch upon just 777 and the investment into the, the BBL, obviously London Lions and then, and then the league um, and sort of all this American money coming into the sport and it's great. Uh, I've heard many whispers that there has been interest from them of also being involved with the national teams and whether it's the commercial rights or whatever it, the, whatever it might be um, because they recognise the importance of a successful national team programme. You know, have you had conversations um, with them, you know, if you have, how's it gone? What What is the sort of the update? Do you think that could be a um, realistic possibility moving forward? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, first thing I would say is for me, if it's about the BBL, it's got to be about the WBBL in equal measure. So, you know, 777 have invested in the BBL. I'm, I have to be as interested in in the in the future of the women's league and game and and i the good news is I, I i can feel the collaboration and the interest happening across those two and and the few clubs which have got teams in both leagues um you know i think that will grow and that will be a trend second thing is that that 777 haven't just injected money they they invest know-how and you know some of the capability that they they are bringing to the british game is going to help me not have to hire people because we'll have that capability. And, and the signs are really good. Um, so 
for example, around some of the deals that they're going to need to do, it obviously makes, you know, I, I, frankly, the way I see it is either we're working with them or we're competing with them. And, and, and with the resource they have, they, they're going to win if it's a competition. The good news is we can work together. And those amazing ambassadors, the current and retired players, for example, have a foot in, you know, they've, they've played in our leagues, most of them, and they've represented us at GB. So uh, the signs are good. I, I've, I've spoken with them, um, men's and women's leagues, several times during my tenure um, so far. And I, I expect those conversations to be a common occurrence. Could you see a situation of them investing money into the national team program? I could. I think, I think that what, you know, I, 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 what I'd like is, is from a GB point of view is to, is to kind of earn that money and, and that the, the basic structure of a relationship between a national federation like ours and the leagues ought to be built around the licensing. And that, you know, there are license agreements and arrangements in place and evolving. So at the heart of our relationship, I want to make sure that the licensing value exchange is what it needs to be. Um, so that's a priority for me before, you know, so if 777 just came along and said, here's a check, um, it's not about looking a gift horse in the mouth, but it's about saying in our order of priorities, which also serve them and, and the league and everyone, it's have we got the basic relationship right first? Mm. And then that, but but as I say, already, um, just in thinking about where are the opportunities around commercial partnerships and so on, that's something that we are doing, to my mind, in tandem with them. When you talk about licensing, just to be clear, that is the fact that the BBF um, awards the operating license for the professional league in this country. So essentially, the BBL cannot and the WBBL cannot be the professional leagues in this country without. BBF sanctioning or awarding them that license, which they pay for, right? So I would assume that we could assume that if there is a lot more money going into the leagues uh, and and the franchises and the, the league is getting richer and there is more of a, an economy around the leagues, the licensing fee would increase accordingly, which would then give the BBF a bigger source of revenue as well. Ultimately, yes. I think the mistake to make would be to assume, I think what, what happens in the real world is that often the period after there's an injection of capital, the almost the opposite applies because the pressure on the system to demonstrate a return that it can return um, make, makes it harder for that organization just to start shelling out more money to people. So I think part of our job, this is where our interests are in common. What we want are strong leaks which are, and, and the definition of strength needs to include really good places where we can cultivate our talent to, to be on court for GB. So I'm sorry if this once again feels like a convoluted answer to what should be a simple question, but the ultimate answer is yes, but the trajectory towards more revenue might involve things staying flat for a while before they go up. And I'd rather make sure that the leagues are healthy that they're inclusive, that they're, they're, they're addressing the interests of the GB bit and not just the club playing in international competition bit, for example, first, 
and then get more money. But but I think that's once again we're well along that path. So I expect the leagues to be happy to be paying a higher license fee in within the next couple of years because it will be part of being part of a, a, a more healthy ecosystem. The other thing that I think would be really good for well, both me and the community to know is just how much do you think it would actually? What is the the number that the British Basketball Federation needs to? run a successful program every year like i'm not talking about the bare minimum i'm saying what do you think would be a good amount that the federation would need to bring in to um you know put on world-class national team program as well as operate in a way that you'd want to operate to be a successful federation what is the figure wow that's a great question which i'm not going to answer actually now because i mean i i gave an answer earlier on which was about the, the, you know, because there is capacity in the home countries, because there's a growing amount of capacity in, for example, the leagues, um, we, we're at the point, and to take that last answer about the leagues, we're at the point where we're, we're, we're collaborating with the leagues in scoping stuff. Can we actually do deals with partners out there, which we co-sign with the leagues and bring in stuff? Um, I don't know yet. So... It is a bit of a how long's a piece of string question, Sam. I do know the bare minimum for a viable kind of program that we need because we've been pulling all this data together as part of our case to UK sport. I apologise to you, but right now I'm not going to tell you what that number is. Um, and, and partly that's because, part of the reason for that is because it's, it, 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 and I'll say it you know, once again, this is one of those things where I might get held to account, but but it, it weakens our position when we're talking to external suppliers um, for them to know exactly what proportion of our total required income we're asking for. So so it's not about, it shouldn't be about that. No, are women, senior women going to the Euro basket, what are they worth? relative to other properties and other groups of athletes and other stories and sets of stories, the, the personal stories, what they've come through, you know, the trajectory out of wherever to college in the States or wherever they've gone and go, you know, what are they worth? They're worth millions and millions, you know, on the back of the football lionesses performance, and it's not all about football, but I, I hugely salute the fact that just a couple of weeks ago, the, the Westminster government announced this £600 million investment in girls' sport. I support that, and basketball should be part of that. But for me, the better question that I still also don't have the answer to yet is, what's the value of British basketball? Not what does basketball need to run a minimum viable programme. What's the value of British basketball, really, when you compare it? And if I just take women's 5v5... We haven't even talked about, I mean, I was at the 3x3 in the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. What's the value of that at GB level? Tens of millions, right? What do we need to run a minimum viable program? Much less than that. But I'm not going to give you a number right now. I'm sorry, Sam. Understood. And then we, we spoke about the women, the men. What is up next for the men? Are they going to be in the pre-Olympic qualifying tournaments at the end of this year? I don't know. Um, what I do know is that the most important thing for the rest of this year is November and the, um, and the start of the Eurobasket qualifying. I know that the, the deadline for entering the pre-Olympic qualifying is this week. Um, we're, we're talking with FIBA. We're talking with 
people involved in the program, including some of the individuals I've mentioned who've been more recent players, about what's, the, what's our best trajectory. Because the most important thing for us is A, to do things well, not just for the sake of doing things. So how do we avoid, for example, putting our men in a similar situation to Eurobasket, where they might arrive at a tournament with zero chance of winning it? Um, but more importantly, how do we make sure that we're strong for November? And, and, I, and my, my straight answer to that is we're in the final stages of defining that. But I will tell you this, and this is a message to the athletes, to the players, as well as everyone else, is that our number one priority in how we're thinking about this is how do we make sure, I mean, if, if, if things happen, you might get on court and something might happen, which means that we get not the kind of performance result we want. That That's part of sport. That's why it's interesting. But we will learn from what happened in last summer's Eurobasket. And now with the, with the added security that we have, at least for the next few months, we will make sure that we build something that, makes you strong when you need to be and gives you the support you need to be. And when you need to be strong in the coming period is in November for that window. So that's, that's, that's a really good example for me, actually, of something which basketball is, is getting better at, which is, and I think I said it once again at the beginning of this, which is fix your eyes up, you know, get a view of what the long-term objective is, see where the milestones are and the midterm objectives and be really rather single-minded about how you best get there. You know, that second half in Belgrade, where some of our youngsters were part of silencing that, that crowd and, and just remarkable things happened. Um, you know, so, some of those players might not have been there if a full squad had been available. You know, the question has, has to be for me, what's the best experience we can give them in the next few months, along with the kind of hard battle-hardened veterans who were there or who, who couldn't be there, that means that we're playing at our top level when it really matters. So the decision being made, the, the decision will be announced um, as to what we choose to do. We will play competitive basketball this summer. That's for sure. We have to. Whether that's around camps or whether it puts that particular tournament at the heart of it, we'll get there. Okay, great. I'm conscious of time. Thank you so much for giving up an hour and 15 minutes to me. Much appreciated. And I think the community will also appreciate uh, you know, hearing from you and kind of the journey that you've been on and are continuing to go on. I wish you all the best with it. Um, you know, I really look forward to seeing GB make some progress over the coming months um, and years. And uh, I'm sure we will catch up soon to check in on progress at some point, uh, hopefully later on in the year. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to have become part of this basketball community. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. 
that you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it and uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week.